Hi, this is Sharon and welcome to Getting Unstuck. I'm a spiritual coach, medium, intuitive, and tarot reader. I'll have weekly guests with inspiring stories of how they went from stuck to unstuck. My hope is this podcast helps you get unstuck so you can begin living the life you've always dreamed of. Hey everyone, it's Sharon and thanks for listening to Getting Unstuck. My co-host today is Dylan Lundgren and Dylan is a TEDx speaker and addiction recovery advocate. His mission is to work with individuals and organizations to increase engagement in the addiction recovery process and improve long-term outcomes. He created the Mind-Body-Spirit program as well as the fitness program for the nationally acclaimed treatment center, Mountainside, in Northwest Connecticut. He is also a nationally certified recovery coach and food addictions coach. Dylan has been in recovery since 2004. Dylan, I wanna tell you something interesting. When I was typing up your bio today, I literally had to do the Reader's Digest version because you have done so much. Thank you so much for the work you are doing in the world um, with recovery and healing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. So let's just start, Dylan, with your story. So, well, one thing I want to mention really quick is just a, a cliff note there. So I co-created, helped to co-create the Mind, Body, Spirit program. I wasn't the creator of it, but I was a co-creator of that. And I'm going to get into why that's important in a minute. So my story is one of a good upbringing. It's one of having what looked like a very good life on the outside. And I had a middle-class, you know, we were a middle-class family. I grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut. And for some reason, I don't know exactly why this is, but for some reason, I just did not feel that comfortable in my own skin. And I can remember that from an early age, but as, as kids, we don't really know how to contextualize that or how to put that into words. I just remember having this feeling of being off, being different and wanting to escape before I even knew what escape really meant. And one of my earliest memories was actually drinking, getting kind of drunk off of juicy juice. And I was waddling around the living room floor on a bunch of juicy juice. I remember having this odd relationship with that feeling. On one hand, I really liked it because it was like an adventure. And on the other hand, I was really scared because I was out of control. And it would be years before I picked up a real drug or even alcohol. And part of that reason why it took me so long was because My grandfather was an alcoholic. Uh, Some of my friends had gotten into drugs in high school and I would see their personalities change. So I didn't really want to be a part of that. But there was a bigger problem, which was I didn't know how to deal with my emotions and I didn't know how to deal with uncomfortable life circumstances. I didn't even really know how to make choices on my own. You know, I was really ambitious. I was really disciplined. But when it came down to it, I had this emotional turmoil going on and this mental turmoil going on that was getting increasingly harder to handle as life progressed, as I was getting older and it was gaining more responsibility. So in high school, I was voted the scholar athlete of my class, the male scholar athlete of my class. I was getting A's. I was the captain of the wrestling team and I was starting to have suicidal thoughts. I was starting to have 
major bouts with depression. And I was starting to get into relationships and was completely incapable of handling that. And what I mean is I would get really jealous. I would get paranoid. I'd get possessive. And all of these things were kind of coming to a crux, like a major turning point. And that turning point for me was going to college and finding alcohol. And when I had my first drink, it was a heck of a lot easier than working out all week long and trying to get all good grades. You know, all I had to do to feel okay was this. And it was so much easier because I thought that if I got the good grades and if I was a state champion wrestler, I thought that then I'd be okay. You know, then I would have arrived and all these feelings, negative feelings would go away and life would just kind of be smooth sailing from that point on. And as we know, that's, that's not the case. You know, it's not bad to get good grades. It's not bad to be a state champion wrestler, but I had all these other things attached to those ideas and I just wasn't okay with myself, but the alcohol fixed that for a short period of time and gave the illusion that I was okay because it really just masked what was going on underneath and gave me the ability to be confident. It gave me the ability to feel relaxed. It gave me the ability to get out of my head and just into the moment. The very things that I, that I do today through a recovery process. But back then the only thing I had really was alcohol. And then that progressed to drugs and then it progressed to what I needed to do to get the drugs, which was stealing, which was losing jobs, which was destroying relationships. And it just progressed to the point where I was a homeless um, crack addict with a few felonies in the same town that I grew up in. You know, the same town where I was in the paper for being a student representative on the board of education, actually advocating against drugs in the school to now being in the paper in the back section for being arrested for felonies in the same town. You know, so it progressed pretty quickly and pretty drastically and was really hard to, to go through because when I would become aware of that, that basically dissonance between who I was and who I ended up being, um, the only way I knew how to numb out that shame and pain was through more drugs. And what brought me to a bottom wasn't the overdoses. It wasn't the psych wards. And there's a whole list of stories there I won't get into, but there was a lot of consequences and a lot of dark situations that the addiction brought me to. Um, it was the loss of freedom that really had me change course. You know, something about the loss of freedom, something about getting locked up in jail and realizing I'm probably going to be here for a long time and maybe the in and out of here the rest of my life if I don't change something. There was something about that loss of freedom that really shifted something in me and gave me a willingness that I hadn't had before. You know, and there had been some really good times early on, really great times, some great experiences with drugs and alcohol. But for anyone who has underlying issues that can't manage it, it's like a Russian roulette. You know, it's like a very slow game of Russian roulette. And for me, that's what shifted, you know, is, is realizing that my life is going to be in and out of places like this. And I probably won't survive that long. And I knew on some level, that's not the life I was meant to live, you know, 
And so I went to a treatment center for the second time. I ended up getting a sponsor in a 12-step network and started to get a lot of different mentors at this treatment center, one of which was a man named Will Boyce. And Will was the founder of the Mind Body Spirit program you mentioned in my bio there. And he took me under his wing and taught me things about spirituality, which I'd never been exposed to. He taught me about yoga, how to connect with my own body. I had never been connected to my body, really. You know, the first yoga class was something that brought me in connection to my body in a way I'd never had before. You know, like, wow, I have legs. I have, you know, I mean, it's obvious, but to really feel that and experience that is something different than just talking about it. And having that experience really awoke me to the fact that a lot of these things that I've been trying to seek outside of myself, I already had access to within myself. So when I would do a yoga class afterwards, I'd feel relaxed. I'd feel in the moment. I'd feel in my body and out of my head, the very things that I was trying to get with the drink, I was now getting through other practices that Will had taught me. And it became such a powerful thing for me that it fueled my recovery and also led me to become an example of that program. And therefore they brought me on as a staff to help build the program. And so I was then able to offer this to other people and still do to this day. So there's a whole list of, of other stories there and other experiences, but that's kind of the, the simplified version of what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. And that, that experience, that crucial turning point um, really shifted my direction, shifted my life in a direction that was much, much different and much more positive than, than it would have been. I'm really really grateful for that. I'm really grateful to share that with other people and just be an, an example that it is possible. It's totally possible. Even if it's really dark, you know, it's still possible. I am so grateful to listen to your story and so thankful that Thank you. you did not die in the process because yeah. I, I think when we are in the middle of our addiction, we can never imagine how great our life will be because I think and I've said this before on the podcast, our minds will only let us let us see what we will lose. It, can, it will never show us the amount of beauty and glory and grace we can live in. And I bet yeah. at that point during the crux of your addiction, you never imagined the life. But I think it was in your TEDx talk, which I will say touched my heart greatly. It was called mm. The Power of Community. And I think in there, you and I wrote this quote down because it was so amazingly beautiful. You said, um, community is like a mirror showing us reflections of ourselves. Community was the bridge from isolation to connection. And I think having a community around us when we are in recovery or actually in, I think it's the beginning of anything, if we can be around like-minded people who can reflect back to us where we are and where we're going is such a powerful thing. So I That's just wanted fine. to throw that out there about your TEDx talk. I thought it was brilliant and genius and so uh, heart filled and mm. so graceful that I'm going to put in the show notes so people can check it out because it was amazing. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear it resonated, you know, because that's that's what I love. I love speaking about these some of these experiences because they were so impactful for me. And when I get to share those in a way that it really is impactful for somebody else, it's just 
Yes, it's great. Lights you up, yeah. So let's let's start here then. Tell me what the signs of addiction are. So a few signs of addiction, and in my experience as well, I'd say the first one is changing social circle. So a changing group of friends, and that can show up either as getting a new group of friends that's more geared towards substance use or getting away from an old group of friends or connections that is not so into the substance use. So for example, in my story, in the early stages when I was in college, even when I would drink on the weekends, there were plenty of people that were around who were healthy, who were getting grades, who were going to the gym. But when I started drinking on the weekdays, when other people were studying, when other people were going to the gym, when other people were going to bed on time, you know, that's when there were only a few people around that were starting to drink like I drank. And those became the people I would connect with more. And even if we span that out to coming back to my hometown where I got into other drugs, there were very few people that were smoking marijuana on a, on a Tuesday night. And there are very few, then, then even fewer people who were getting into something like crack. And this process took, you know, a while. It took a couple of years, which some people it's shorter, some people it's longer. But in that process, there was this stepping away from a healthy social circle to an unhealthy social circle. And so there's, there's signals in there that people can pick up on, whether it's a parent, a loved one, you know, a child, there's signals people can pick up on in there based on who they're connecting with. Cause we connect with people that share our values to some extent. I mean, there's a reason why we're connecting on this podcast, you know, and it's the same thing with human nature in general and the same thing with addiction, right? Addiction thrives in like-minded environments with like-minded individuals. And by like-minded, I mean the priority is a substance or a behavior. And I wanna be around people that can enable that. I wanna be around people that accept that. I wanna be around people that are gonna have access to that. And so if I'm moving forward in addiction, then that's gonna be my priority is to find those people that hit those, those metrics, you know, or to avoid the people that are gonna discourage me from those metrics. So that's, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just thought I would put that out there just in case there are some parents out there, like you mentioned, that might be witnessing some behavior that has shifted or changed in their children. And uh, you brought up some really good points. So thank you for that. Um, I noticed in your bio too, that you treat food and alcohol addicts. So is there a difference in the process of treating either one? Personally, I think that addiction is addiction is addiction. So whether it's drugs, alcohol, food, pornography, shopping, it's, I, I personally, I think it's probably the same recovery process, but I'd love to hear your take on that. I agree. I agree with you. I feel the same way. It's, it's the same in terms of the core problem, you know, addiction is addiction and it manifests in a, in a different way with food than it does maybe with with alcohol or, or drugs. So there's some subtle differences there, but the way that it, you know, like the, the common language or the common 
traits of addiction are similar across the board. So we're doing a behavior. We have a relationship with something or somebody that is destructive. And yet we continue to do it, even though the consequences are getting progressively worse. And even though we don't want to do it, we continue to engage in that. So it could be food. It could be, yeah, it could be alcohol. So, but with food, it's a little different, right? So food tends to be a little more insidious because it's more culturally acceptable there's more myths around around what it takes to kind of get out of the grips of certain types of food addiction and so there's a little more to work with there you know sugar's one sugar's a big one so for most people that are addicted to food uh sugar is going to be something they want to move away from it's not going to be something they're going to be able to handle normally for most people yeah and yet Yes, but yet culturally, that's that's one of the myths, right? Is we just need to learn how to moderate. So there's that subtle thing of like, yes, we want to moderate. Obviously, we have to eat food, but when we're dealing with sugar, that's most likely going to keep somebody in a state of addiction if they're prone to that. And I think I honestly anything that should be done in moderation, I can't do. So I have to be vigilant (laughs) all the time. Yeah, Yeah, and it just seems like sugar really is the hardest one for me, Dylan. Because it it's is successful. One. I've never been pulled over for having a ring of sugar yeah. around my mouth from a jelly donut, right? Yeah. It's acceptable. Yeah. It is a tough one for me. So I, and that's why I think intermittent fasting works for me because I don't nice. have a middle road. I'm either all in or all out. Mm. I've never had one Oreo or one drink. It's the whole bottle yeah. or the whole row. Yeah. I've heard really good things about the fasting. So you're, you're a fan of that. I am a big fan of that. Yeah. And I feel better. I have way more energy when I'm doing the fasting um, than when I'm eating because it's breakfast and I have to eat or noon Mm. or whatever. So yeah, I really love it a lot. Yeah. And again, part part of that is it suits my personality too. So yeah. Um, One of the questions that I saw on your, um, I guess we'll call it your bio, it says, um, is medication assisted treatment the gold standard? Were you talking about Suboxone in that? Uh, Yeah, that would fall under that heading, yeah. Yeah, because I know a lot of people in recovery are on Suboxone, which, I mean, I have my own personal views about that, but I'd love to hear what you think about that. So my own opinion on that is it's a great short-term solution for detox, but it's a it's not a great alternative for re- long-term treatment for recovery and can actually be a, a very harmful treatment oh, in f- when, when used long-term. Okay. Physically harmful? Yeah. So for example, Suboxone has been shown to block up to, a low dose can block up to 80% of a person's feelings. So if we're getting into recovery, one of the developmental tasks of recovery is to feel. Right. Like that's how we heal. We feel. And if we can't feel, then our body suppresses the ability to heal and to cope. And eventually, just like holding a beach ball underwater, those feelings are going to find a way to come up. And if we don't have coping mechanisms to, to, to deal with those feelings, then, you know, most likely we're going to turn to our habit, which with people suffering from addiction is the substance, you know. Right. And so it's this catch 22. It's like on some level, it looks like recovery because it pushes down the feelings. But 
real, real recovery is learning how to deal with those feelings and allowing our brain to connect and, you know, have insights and instead of just kind of pushing it down. Right. You know, that, that's one example. But there's a lot of there's studies that show it helps. There's people that say it helps, but there's also a good amount of people who it doesn't. And so it's having that conversation, right? It's not one or the other, it's both. And there's only one side of that story that's being blasted on the public, in the public narrative. And there's a whole nother side of the story. I just met somebody recently who got into heroin because of Suboxone. So they got Suboxone first on the street and then transitioned to heroin. That's frightening. Yeah, and even in uh, one last uh, thing I'll share on that. So in India, buprenorphine is the active ingredient in Suboxone. That's the opiate, the partial, you know, opiate in Suboxone. And um, in India, 67,000 people were seeking treatment for addiction to buprenorphine. No kidding. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like it's just a band-aid and not even a very good band-aid and I, I think short term yes like you were saying but i think i know a few people who are still on it and they have been in recovery for about two years yeah i don't know why their doctor doesn't take them off that's probably a whole yeah. other podcast right doctor yeah well well i was yeah i mean it's it yeah it's a tough one i mean i've i've been working on the front lines for years now and i have not seen that many people do well in it and occasionally i have but more often what i've seen is um relapse and overdose mm -hmm. and those are highly correlated with controlled medications one of those being suboxone so if i see a client who relapses or overdoses i'd say anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of the time they're on suboxone or some other controlled medication some other narcotic medication frightening statistics. Can yeah. you tell me what trauma has to do with addiction? Yeah, so there is a study by, um, the, it's called the ACEs study. And the ACEs study, A-C-E-S, stands for Adverse Childhood Event or Experiences. And basically what those are is trauma, like traumatic childhood experiences. And when an individual has a certain number of those, I believe it's, I'd have to look again, I believe it's five to seven, their chances of suffering from addiction later on in life skyrocket. So a lot of individuals who have trauma, um, who have addiction, have a history of some type of trauma. And it's important to remember that trauma is somewhat subjective. So if I don't have, you know, my mom right now, you know, I'm fine, it's not traumatic. But if I'm, you know, one or two years old, and I don't have my mom, you know, for a period, long period of time, that can be really traumatic. So that can be one example of how trauma can show up. But what happens with trauma is it really affects the brain's ability to feel good. And it really affects the body's ability to handle stress. So it basically puts a, it puts the body in a chronic stress response, which messes up a lot of the chemicals. And so we want to be able to feel okay, we want to feel relaxed, we want to feel good. And so a substance is a really good alternative to that dis-ease. And that needs to be healed in order to, to move forward into long-term recovery, which is another problem with some medications. I see. If they don't give us the ability to feel, then 
can't really heal that trauma. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. And can you tell me what what are the good or what are the components rather of a good foundation in recovery? Good question. Um, there's so many. I, when I get this, when I think of this, there's just a, there's a lot of different ones. But the first one would be an accountability system, a support system. That's probably the main one. And that's similar to what we were talking about before. What are the signs of addiction? Was well, basically the same thing, just polar opposite. All right. So instead of instead of acclimating to an unhealthy group of supports, we're acclimating to a healthy group of supports. So some type of accountability support network that could be a 12-step group, that could be a recovery coach, that could be a small group that has the same values and commitments. There's a ton of Facebook groups out there. That could be even a loved one. You know, that could be a therapist. But ideally, it would be somebody or something that's consistent enough to check in on a regular basis at first on a daily basis. So when someone's first starting in recovery, they want to have daily accountability. Like that's really what's going to keep the individual on track because at first there's going to be a lot of resistance, if only subconsciously, to making that change because there's a lot of momentum subconsciously, biologically, psychologically to going in one direction. And when we want to go a different direction, there's some resistance to that. So we want to have reminders set up in the in forms in the form of other people reminding us, yes, go this way. Yes, go this way. Yes, you're doing okay. Yes, go this way. And that's one. Another one would be looking at biochemical influences. These are things that affect our biology and psychology that we're not aware of consciously all the time, but that they still can have a big effect in how we're thinking and behaving. One of those would be sugar. Another one of those would be caffeine. Another one would be medications. Another one would be media or Wi-Fi. You know, the amount of screen time we have, the type of shows we watch. And another one would be nicotine. So I know I just threw out a lot there, but mainly things that can affect our biology and psychology in a negative way that we don't always consider. So for example, someone might wanna recover from addiction but if they are in a treatment center and they're chain smoking, they're on Suboxone, they're on Gabapentin, and they're watching Breaking Bad four hours a day, five days a week, but they want it, they want to recover, and they're going to meetings, and maybe they've got a network, they're probably gonna have a really hard time. Because under the surface of the action they are taking. Their biology is being affected by these other addictive, potentially addictive substances, substances or behavior. That is and even so though, interesting. Even though they're right. So even though their mind wants to go here, the body is going to try them to get them to go here. And with addiction, biology is always going to win out over psychology. That's the essence of addiction, right? Biology wins out over psychology. So psychology says, oh, I'm totally doing fine. I don't want to use it anymore. I'm just going to go here. But the biology, if it's still being run by the addiction, then it's going to figure out a way to get us to go here, which is how people end up doing the same thing and be like, how did this happen? I had no intention of going over here. Well, a lot of times, in my opinion, 
it's because of things that are running under the surface, almost like an app on a phone running in the background or like a virus on, on a computer. You know, you try to type something in and it just shows up at the screen on the screen is something completely different. You're like, well, I just typed, I just typed this word in and now it shows, shows up in something different. Well, there's a virus running in the background that we're not aware of. And that's what some of these things can do. Not all the time, but they can, and they definitely can when they're compounded. So when you take a few of them, a few of these influences, and you throw them on top of each other, the chances of recovery go way, way, way down. And that's my professional assessment. That's not scientific data. But if you would look at just the correlation um, of the two, of relapse and these influences, you'd see a high correlation. And if you look at the science of how they affect the brain, I think it's pretty, you know, pretty logical uh, connection there. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the, um, I guess, a common thing I hear at, at meetings, especially from young people, is one of their comments is, I will never have fun again, ever. Yeah. Like, if that's like their main concern in their recovery is like, I'll just never have fun. And I know that you, I was, when I was doing some research on you, I saw that um, sober raves and yeah. slams are really important to you and fun. I love it. Yeah, yeah I love it. And Blast. Yes. And I think that I think it's our addiction talking when we when it says you will never have fun again because the totally. addiction wants what it wants when it wants it and it will kill you to get it. Totally. So yeah. I would just love if you could talk a little bit about having fun in recovery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. When I first got into recovery, I had the same, same thoughts, the same feelings that this would never change. You know, recovery just is going to suck. I'm not going to have fun. And for a little while, it was tough, you know, for like through the detox period, I won't lie to you, it was tough. But what started to happen was as I started to stay sober and recover, I started to have experiences I had never had or hadn't had in a long time. And one of the reasons why drugs and alcohol was so appealing was because it allowed me to have fun for a short period of time. And then, you know, for anyone with addiction, it gets massively worse. But what started to happen in recovery was I started to have the same experiences that I used to have when I was getting high but without any of the negative consequences. So what I mean is I started to take some of the suggestions that were given to me, like doing yoga, like working the 12 steps, simple things like going on a hike one day. And what I would notice is I started to have good moments and I started to have good days. And they would show up sporadically at first. It wasn't consistent. But when they showed up, it gave me a little hope because my recovery was based on blind faith. It was, I'm going to die or I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to be locked up for the rest of my life. And something in me doesn't want that. And I'm going to follow that voice. But it was really about escaping pain. And as I did that, I started to have some good things happen and some good experiences. And like I said, that gave me hope to keep going. And all of a sudden, those days became a little more consistent, maybe once a week, maybe once a month. And then there would be events where I actually started to be, feel like myself again. I actually started to 
express myself, maybe say a joke, maybe, you know, there's a Halloween dance and I dressed up for the Halloween dance. And a lot of us went to a special Halloween store and it was a group outing. And it was like that experience of being in this bus with a bunch of people in recovery, you know, getting our Halloween outfits for the dance. And then that night all dressing up and dancing sober, having a blast, having a blast, you know, or doing a native American sweat lodge ceremony, which I had never done before and having a spiritual experience and realizing what that was, not because somebody told me about it, but because I actually had the experience, you know, in the middle of the woods in this beautiful area of Northwest Connecticut and just looking around and realizing that this path of recovery made this possible, you know? Um, and then fast forward years later and here I am facilitating a, a sober rave or, a poetry slam for an entire community, allowing people to have a voice and express their creative selves and being the MC who's orchestrating all of it, you know, coming from, you know, being a, a kid who used to cut himself and tried to, you know, had overdosed. And so that extreme nature, I think really speaks to the possibility of recovery. You know, you can be in a really dark place, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have fun. Like that's just the mind's way of, it's what the mind does, you know, but on the other side of that, if you hang in there a little bit and try some new things, it's only a matter of time before it's going to get better. And when it gets better, you never have to go back. So I don't spend my days like wondering if I'm going to have a good day or wondering if I'm going to have fun again. I already know I am because my mind has changed. My brain is healed at this point to a place where I already know. You know, in a similar way that I used to feel bad all the time. And it was just like, I already know tomorrow's going to suck. I already know, you know, it's like the total opposite now where I already know I'm going to have some good experiences. I'm going to have some good times. And occasionally it's going to be hard. Life's not easy, but those are the odd moments out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's such a difference waking up when I was in the throes of my addiction, I would wake up in the morning feeling like, oh. Like not another day of this, right? Mm. Because you are a slave yeah. to that addiction. Yeah. Now I wake up excited with so much joy and gratitude for the life I have now. Awesome. Dylan, I should have asked you this in the beginning, but how old were you during your addiction? I was around, let's see, I was around my early 20s. It was your so early like, Yeah. You still look like you're in your early 20s. Thank you. So that's, that's recovery for you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So for anyone who's sick and suffering out there listening, or whether they're dealing with a food addiction or alcohol or drugs, any, I don't know, words of advice to take that first step? How can they get, how can they get started? What, what's the one thing they could try to do? So there's a few things that come to mind. One is one of my favorite quotes is from uh, Robert Kiyosaki who's this famous entrepreneur, but the way that he, he expresses this, I think is really relevant to recovery. He says, remember what you set out to do, keep that memory in your heart and keep the flame going. And I bring that up because a lot of what I've seen with people trying to get into recovery or even change their life, isn't that it's hard so much as they give up at some point. So they may slip a little bit, they may have a bad day, they may pick up again, and they just give up. They think, well, I can't do this, right? I, I slipped up, I can't do this. 
And that's probably the biggest lie there is when it comes to addiction. Because everybody slips up, including myself. And I don't mean, you know, I relapse at this point, but the, the process is two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. So whether you're just having a rough time and it doesn't feel good at first and you're trying to get in recovery or whether you do pick up, the response isn't, okay, I'm a failure and this doesn't work for me, right? The response is, what's next, right? What do I need to do today? Do I need to call somebody and tell them I slipped up? Do I need to get to a meeting? Do I need like just continue to add stuff to the plate, so to speak? until there's no room for addiction. And that's a process. For some people, it'll happen quickly. For some people, it'll happen slowly, but it's a process. But it's totally possible. But we got to keep trying. And we got to keep trying. There's a great analogy from a a movie, uh, The Dark Knight Rises, a Batman movie. I was just talking about this, this recently. I think it really illustrates this well. You know, Batman is confined to this well where he's like, two, 300 feet down in this well with all these other people. And for some reason, I forgot why, but they're all confined to this well. And the only way out is through this crazy process of trying to climb up out of the well. And there's this rope that people use to do it. It's still insanely dangerous. You know, anyone that tries to climb gets severely injured, maybe even dies because it's just a very dangerous process. But the alternative is to be confined basically to this dark, deep pit for the rest of their life. Most people are okay with that after a while because they keep trying and then they just give up. And they're like, well, I'm never going to make it out of the well, so I'll just be okay with this, right? Being confined in this dark pit. But Batman decides to keep trying and it gets kind of messed up. But eventually he tries, but he tries without the rope, which is like the only kind of safety measure, but he feels like the rope is what's keeping him psychologically tethered to down to this pit, if that makes sense. You know, he's got to kind of let go of anything that's keeping him in the old life to make room for getting up and out of this pit into the new life. And I feel like that's a really good analogy. He's like, what does it take to get up and out of the pit? And how can I be willing to continue to move in that direction regardless of how many times I fall because with that mindset it's literally only a matter of time before you make it out that is a great analogy yeah I I love it sharing that one (laughs) yeah yeah. I want to ask you real quick as we're wrapping this up do you have any non-negotiables in the morning do you have a morning routine um, that helps with recovery or or just your mental health in general yeah, so prayer is a big one for me. Meditation is a big one. And then I'll usually do a, a daily reading. I eat pretty healthy, but prayer and meditation are like the big ones. Those two I do every single day. Same. Yeah. Great. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the thank time you. to share your story and to to offer hope and healing to those who will be listening. And um, yeah, for you, sure. I, I said this earlier, Dylan, you are a light in this world. And I am so grateful that you are in this world helping others and because we need people like you. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate what you're up to and have an opportunity to, to collaborate and, and share.